Uh, it's a privilege just to be here with you guys. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed their Thanksgiving. Uh, I noticed many of us are wearing layers this morning, so uh, we probably enjoyed it a little too much. The clothes were speaking to us this morning. Um, but we're grateful that we get to be thankful for what God has done for us and be reminded of that very fact. So um, I'm going to ask that you guys stand with me as we read from God's Word. Today we're going to be taking a look at Proverbs, um, as specifically as what it says about money. Proverbs, more than, um, well, Proverbs as well as uh, other books, speaks a lot about our money and resources and things of that nature. So uh, there's about 20 or so passages that we're going to read just to help us understand the importance and significance behind money. So we're going to be bouncing around, but if you look to the screen, each verse will be up there. Uh, the first one is Proverbs 11:4. It reads, Wealth is not profitable on a day of wrath, but righteousness rescues from death. Proverbs 11:7. If you can go back, oh, there we go. Proverbs 11:7. When the wicked person dies, his expectation comes to nothing, and hope placed in wealth vanishes. 11:24. One person gives freely yet gains more; another withholds it and withholds what is right only to become poor. Verse 25. A generous person will be enriched, and the one who gives a drink of water will receive water. 26. People will curse anyone who hoards grain, but a blessing will come to the one who sells it. Proverbs 13, 7. One person pretends to be rich but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor but has abundant wealth. Proverbs 13, 8. Wealth obtained or riches are a ransom for a person's life, but a poor person hears no threat. Proverbs 13, 1. Wealth obtained by fraud will dwindle, but whoever earns it through labor will multiply it. 13.22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. 15.6, the house of the righteous has great wealth, but trouble accompanies the income of the wicked. 15.16, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with turmoil. 15.17, better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened ox with hatred. 17.1. Better a dry crust with peace than a house full of feasting with strife. 17.16. Why does a fool have money in his hand with no intention of buying wisdom? 18.1. The wealth of the rich is his fortified city. In his imagination it will, or it is like a high wall. 20.17. Food Gained by fraud is sweet to the person, but afterwards his mouth is full of gravel. 21.6. Making a fortune through a lying tongue is a vanishing mist, a pursuit of death. 22.2. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord makes them all. 22.7. The rich rule over the poor, and the bower, bower, bower is a slave. Borrower, thank you. Everybody help. Thank you for the help. <laughs> is a slave to the lender. 22.16. Oppressing the poor to enrich oneself and giving to the rich both lead only to poverty. 23.4. Don't wear yourself out to get rich. Because you know better, stop. 23.5. As soon as your eyes fly to it, it disappears. For it makes wings for itself and flies like an eagle to the sky. Proverbs 28:22. A greedy one is in a hurry for wealth. He doesn't know that poverty will come to him. Proverbs 28:27. The one who gives to the poor will not be in need, but the one who turns his eyes away will receive many curses. Proverbs 37. Two things I ask of you. Don't deny them to me before I die. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, 
in light of your word, Father, we already feel the weight of we need your help. We already felt, feel the weight of our neediness towards you because just hearing your word and seeing your truth, Father, it exposes us. God, I pray that your word would be a support for us this day. Would you remind us not of your truth as to crush us, but would you remind us of your truth as to free us? Would we not find condemnation or uh, conviction or whatever it may be as the only thing that you offer us today? Would we be reminded that you extend to us grace and mercy? You're rich in those things. And would those be the things that lead us to greater repentance, that we can freely confess where we've fallen short in hope, in the hope of, and the promise of what you've provided to us, which is for those who have trusted in you, we have unconditional love and acceptance. God, we thank you for that this morning. And would you use your word to instruct us to live lives pleasing to you and in glory of you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2004, during my sophomore year of college, uh, my parents decided to buy me a car. I was 19 years old, and of course I wanted something fresh and clean, and so my dad told me the budget that we had, and so we went car shopping. We went from dealership to dealership, and it wasn't until we got to one dealership where my eyes landed on a beauty. I saw this 2004 Mitsubishi Galant that was gray, 17-inch alloy wheels, tinted windows, and my heart leapt. I saw this car, and immediately I called her Betsy because she was mine. And in calling her mine, I realized that this car was so beautiful that I had to have her. And so I told my dad, this is the one, and we purchased it. And so after that, I did what anyone does who gets a new car. I went cruising. And so I drove through the Houston streets with the, uh, my music blaring and my seat leaned all the way back. But one thing I couldn't wait for was to get back on campus. I couldn't wait to get back to school so that I could do things like help my friends get rides to classes and to other places, so that I can help take people to church who wanted to go to church. I had prayed for this car, and I had made all these declarations to God about what I hoped to do with it. But though those de declarations were really sincere, they weren't fully truthful. See, I wanted the car not only but for those things, but I wanted the car for what I thought it could provide me. I wanted the car for the status or the appearances or, uh, or the girls, if I'm keeping it real. The things that I knew that it could offer me now that I had it. Well, after about three weeks of having the car, something happened to my poor Betsy. As I was in between classes and I was going to grab something from Sonic, I began to pull out pull out of Sonic, and all of a sudden I hear a crash. I had backed Betsy into this yellow pole. So I get out of the car, and I'm like, everyone's looking at me, and I'm like, okay, Lord, uh, I don't know what I'm about to do. i got to play it cool. So, but in my mind, I was like, no, Lord, help me. And it was in that moment that I realized that God was teaching something about what was in my heart. It was in that moment that I realized that what had happened to Betsy really just had revealed that I had made Betsy more than just a car. I had made Betsy into a treasure. I had loved Betsy for all of the wrong things as well as some of the right things. You see, today as we talk about money, we're not necessarily talking about money in terms of it being bad, but we're talking about money as in terms of what it can do to our hearts. We're talking about money in terms of what we looked for it to do for us, which in a lot of ways is to give us value and significance and worth. In both the Proverbs and the Gospels, money is talked about more than any subject, and the answer or the question that we need to ask is why. Why is money so important? Why is money something that God is intentional with, or with communicating over and over what seems to be relentless so that we can understand it and keep it in its right place. Well, according to the Bible, money is one of the most tangible ways that we can identify what we're truly worshiping. If you want to know what you love the most and what you desire the most, all you have to do is look at your bank account. Look at your bank statement. See what it is that you give to, who it is that you give to. What missions of work are you supporting? What uh, 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 what advocacies or justices or who are you helping meet 
Who are you helping to meet their needs? Money has a way of shining the mirror back on ourselves to help us see what it is our hearts truly desire. And so today, what I want us to do is I want to convince us, I want to allow God's word to convince us that money is a tool and not a treasure. If there's any takeaway that you get to, from today's word, I want us to hear that money is a tool and not a treasure. So the first point is this, money shouldn't be treasured. Money shouldn't be treasured. Let me first say this, that money is not a bad thing. Money is a good gift from God. It is meant for our enjoyment in a number of ways. Most of us know in this room that money affords us opportunities to go on things like vacations, to buy nice things, to wear nice clothes. It is a good thing. However, we're not talking about the inanimate object of money, but rather, as I mentioned earlier, what it does to our hearts. You see, to treasure something is to be ruled by it. It's to be enslaved to it. It's to, to have to commit ourselves to achieving it or getting it for ourselves above all else. Today, as we talk about money, think of it in terms of how money can become our greatest treasure. The problem is, is that God wants to show us that money can't be all that we want it to be. Money can't do for us all that we hope it can. And so the, the text will draw our attention to money's goodness, but also its limitations. There was an ice cream company a while back that came up with this delectable treat called a Klondike bar. And really, this Klondike bar really is just a square of vanilla ice cream covered in chocolate. But to them, it was so delicious that they came up with this model, what will you do for a Klondike bar? And in that model, in that model, in that slogan, it implied that this treat was so delicious that it demanded that you do anything in order to obtain it. Money will demand the same thing from you and I. Money will demand that we make it our God and that we are willing to do anything to obtain it. So how do we know that money has become our treasure? Proverbs gives us five things to look at as a diagnostic, a diagnostic. And the first one is this. We look to money for security. We look to money for security. Proverbs 18.1 says this. The wealth of the rich is his fortified city. In his imagination is like a high wall. First, we need to recalibrate what we think about terms like wealth and rich in the Bible. For many of us, when we think about the wealthy or the rich, our, our minds immediately fly to people like Oprah Winfrey or Bill Gates or those who own multiple houses or those who go on extravagant trips. However, if we only compare wealth and riches in our culture or in first world scenarios, excuse me, we'll remove ourselves too quickly from the equation. Wealth in the Bible has to be filtered through the lens of the entire world. A few weeks ago, a few months ago, uh, me and Tim, we went to Kenya, and it was over in Kenya that I realized that what we deem to be poverty in this country is completely different in Kenya and other third world countries. You see, when I went there, I began to see that though there were many hardships in this country, one thing that I noticed was that there are also great privileges, there are great luxuries that we have here. It was being over there that I walked through unpaved streets and I saw children sitting on the side of the road with no clothes on their back as I realized that the luxury of having running water really was a luxury. That when I came back and I drove through the neighborhood we're moving into in some of the hardest parts of our city, I realized that, man, it made that look like Buckhead. It made what we have here look like extravagance. It's not to say that poverty in this country isn't bad. It's not to say that there are things that we should, as Christians, we should strive to ensure that people are given, lifted out of those very things. But it is to, to help shape our perspective. That if you're in this room right now and you have the ability to use extra money to buy you a Big Mac, you're rich. If you're in this room right now and you have multiple pairs of clothes and clothes that you haven't worn for years, you're rich. If you can go to your toilet and hit a button and flush 
what you left in there, you're rich. We have to recalibrate our perspective of wealth beyond what we only see in this country and realize that according to the rest of the world, we are within the top percentage of the wealthy. Think about that as you hear about money being used in the Bible, that God has blessed even the lowest of us tremendously, and that living here is a gift. Again, this is not to say that poverty in this country shouldn't be eradicated. It shouldn't be something that we care about, but it is to help shape our perspective so that we can understand what it is that God is talking about. The text says that the wealth of the rich is his fortified city. The rich place their trust in the ability to keep them secure. They believe that money somehow can shield us from tragedy. In fact, it goes on to say that in his imagination, it's a high wall. That there's a deception that takes place when we have money that thinks that we are untouchable. Here's the thing. We can invest the next 10 years of our lives storing up and accomplishing degree after degree after degree with the promise that after we graduate, we'll get a job. However, I stood in lines with those who were doctors and professors eight years ago when the economy collapsed, and guess what? The degrees did not spare them from that fate. You can buy homes in the hills of Buckhead, and you can live in the loss of Midtown and Decatur, but one thing you can't stop is from crime coming to your front door. And the reality is that though media will tell us crime only happens on certain parts of town, and that's intentional, we know that crime happens everywhere. That you cannot protect yourself from all of the outcomes or the various outcomes that this world just has and offers to us. You can indeed even buy a home in this hood. You can buy a home in a low-income neighborhood and you can get all of the ring devices you want. You can get all the security cams. You can get all the dogs and the weapons you want to protect you. You can even do things like getting Terminex and exterminators. But that's not going to give you a foolproof assurance that those termites won't find a gap and won't eat up your wall and cause your house to fully collapse. Money affords us this delusion, this illusion of security that in, despite all of our efforts, we cannot fully control. If we look to money for our security, what we're saying is that, God, we, what we really want most is control. And if we're honest, the safest place for us to be at all times is in the arms of our very own plans. We like to control and dictate what will and will not happen in our lives, and the reality is we can't. That's fool's go. You can't control every outcome of your life. But money, money will not give you any more security than a seatbelt in a plane crash. Money will not give you any more security than a seatbelt in a plane crash. And the reality is for you and for I, the plane is going down. Every day that we wake up in the morning and we take an extra, another breath, that's one day closer to our death. And that may seem morbid, but that's the reality of life. That's what we have to look forward to, at least for those who don't, have not trusted in Jesus, that one day we will breathe our last. Brothers and sisters, realize that money is not as strong as you think it is. Money is not as strong as you think it is, but not only that, we look to money for our hope. Eleven seven says, when the wicked person dies, his expectation comes to nothing, and hope placed in wealth vanishes. This one commentary puts it like this, money brings with it an expectation of a longer life and a better, and a better quality of living. It holds within it the promise of getting more riches, of attaining more hour, of, uh, of, of obtaining more honor of enjoying more pleasure here and of having happiness hereafter and of being delivered from the wrath to come. The writer says that hope in the wealth will vanish. What it says it will provide you will not extend into the life after death. There was this woman who met a friend of her father's whom hadn't seen him in a long time. 
This man, this woman's father was a devout Christian, and so what she enjoyed doing most was to talk about how her father persevered through things like suffering and trials and illness. Well, as she was sharing with her father's friends what the Lord had done in her father's life, the friend, however, had lived quite a different life. The friend had given himself com- over completely to earning money and hoarding every cent that he could. He had indeed become very wealthy. But he didn't have the same glad anticipation of heaven as her father did. He explained it to his daughter this way. Your father can be more optimistic about heaven than I for one simple reason. He is going to his treasure. I will be leaving mine behind. This story encaptures exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 45. 9, 16 through 20, as it reads, Do not be afraid when a person gets rich. When the wealth of his house increases, for when he dies, he will take nothing at all. His wealth will not follow him down. Though he blesses himself during this life, and you are acclaimed when you do well for yourself, he will go into the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Mankind with his assets, but without understanding, is like animals that perish. Placing our hope in wealth is like, eating cot- is like eating cotton candy. It size promises fulfillment, and it's beautiful to the eye, but the moment that it hits our tongues, it disintegrates. It vanishes, leaving us unsatisfied and unfulfilled. We need something to give us hope that extends beyond this life, that extends into the life to come. This life is but a blur, so why trust in something with a shelf life? Hope in money doesn't, doesn't last as long as you'd hope. Hope in money doesn't last as long as you'd hope. But not only do we look for, to money for security and hope, we look to it for companionship. The text in 23.5 reads, As soon as your eyes fly to it, it disappears. For it makes wings for itself and flies like an eagle in the sky. Back in the day, I worked a job where I got paid bi-weekly. And the good thing about getting paid bi-weekly is that there's certain months out of the year where you get three paychecks. And so, yeah, I got a few amens there. And in getting those three paychecks, what you'll find is, is that, you know, knowing that you're going to get three paychecks, you've kind of got your, your budget down. And so you know that, man, I'm, I've got enough to get by, but that third paycheck is going to put me over the top. So I began, I began making plans for that third paycheck twice a year, even before it hit my bank account. And so when that time would come, and I was like, yes, it's July, I'm getting three paychecks, it seemed like life would hit. It's like the moment that I was going to get something extra. A bill would come in the mail I didn't know I had. My tire would, get, would blow out. My AC in my house would go out. My car would completely stop in the middle of the road. All of those things would take place that would demand that that little extra money that would allow me to ball out now had to go back to paying bills. The moment that we set our eyes on money is the moment that it's going to disappear. There's just something about as if we chase after fast money, it'll be fast coming in, but it's also going to be fast going out. Money is kind of like those pair, like pairs of socks. You know that you have it, but the moment that you go look for them, you can never find a matching pair. It's like the laundry machine always wants to eat one of them. If we look to money for companionship, it's only going to prove to us to be unreliable. It only is going to point to us that our deepest need is to find something faithful and true to its word, not something shaky and wishy-washy. Money won't be loyal to you. It's not loyal. But it also won't be as loyal to you as you are to it. Money will always disappoint you if we look to it to be our friend. But we also look to money for significance. It says in 13.7, one person pretends to be rich but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor but has abundant wealth. If I were to ask you the question, or somebody were to ask you the question, why do you live where you live? Why do you drive the car that you drive? 
Why do you wear the name brand clothes that you wear? Could it be that there's something underneath your deep need to have those things? Could it be more than just you like them, but a sense of these things give me worth? Over Thanksgiving, I got to reflect on so many things that I'm just grateful to the Lord for, and one of those things is this church. Pastor John alluded to it earlier, but what I've been most grateful to see is that before this church even started, there were so many people out here that said, you can't plant churches in neighborhoods like this. You can't go into a community that, that the average income is only thirty dollars to $40,000 and actually think that a church will thrive there. And over the last almost four years, God has provided not only to meet our needs, but he's provided above our needs. And it's in that that the way in which he's done that is he's brought people from all over the city of Atlanta to partner with us in the gospel work that God has given us here as a church. And in him doing that, he's given us members who are generous with the resources that God has given them and that many could say are wealthy. Now let me stop here as a pastor, disclaimer, I don't know what any member in this church gives. I don't know what your bank account is. I don't know how much you make. We don't look at those things. But as we go through membership processes, one thing that we do know is we know what people have left behind in order to be a part of this work. We hear of the stories of families who have left the mansions in North Atlanta to sell all of those things to come and live lowly, simpler lives here for the sake of the gospel. We have families that have denied promotions and opportunities to go and make buku money, but loved what God was doing here and the family that he provided for them here more than they loved that increased paycheck. We have families here and people here who last week, when a need in our church came up, it was less than 24 hours that the church came together and provided above and beyond the ask that was given so that one of our members could continue her education in school. God has given us so much to be grateful, for, grateful to and so much to be grateful for here as a church. And I'm grateful to know that there's so many of us who have not looked to money for our significance. So many of us who have not looked to money to give them something or give them more than what God has already given them himself. But as much as it, there is to be grateful for those who haven't placed their significance in money, some of us have. Some of us have looked to money to find our value and our worth. And the reality is that when we do that, we make ourselves out to be a fool. Look at what the text says, that there are people who will pretend to be rich, though they have nothing. We've seen this. You can drive down the road and see that 1982 Chevy that looks like it came out of a junkyard, but it got 24s, though. It got a $2,000 sound system in the back. We know those who have spent all of their tuition checks on designer clothes, but now find themselves not being able to continue school. We know those who, and we, myself, have been those who have cared more about appearing to be wealthy rather than actually being wealthy itself. This person is kind of like the person who owns a Mercedes-Benz but lives with his mama because he has to. If we look to money for our significance, we'll only be putting ourselves out there to look foolish. Money doesn't care about you. Money doesn't care what you look like to the rest of the world. The beauty of even this church is that you'll never really know who's wealthy. Not that that's a bad thing, but there's wealth in here with people who have done the latter and said, my wealth and what I can put on my body doesn't define me, and so therefore you'll never know that I'm rich at least from the external appearances. But they're willing to give and give to help meet needs. And that's true wealth. Trusting in money for significance, it will only lead you to place your identity in what you can acquire rather than what has been acquired for you. But it also will lead you to elevate yourself over others who don't have what you have. You'll begin to look down on people who can't afford to go the places that you go. 
who can't afford to wear the type of shoes that you wear. And you begin to treat them not as those beneath you economically, but those who are actually just beneath you. Look here what the Lord says in 22.2. It says that rich and poor have this in common. The Lord makes them all. Have you thought about it that way? That you, those who are rich are rich because God made you rich? Those who are poor are poor because God made you poor? God doesn't view rich and poor the same way that we do. You may not have material things, but that doesn't change your worth. You may have material things, but that doesn't indicate your worth. God sees rich and poor as those both needy for the gospel. Those both equal when it comes to his standard and not our own. The real question is, why trust in something that would make us look foolish? Why trust in something that will make us look foolish? But lastly, we can look to money for satisfaction. Money will only give us instant gratification. And evidence that we have placed our trust in money is revealed in the lengths that we're willing to go to obtain it. We believe that money will satisfy us, and so fast money seems better than good, honest, hard work. Look at what he says in 13.11. Wealth obtained by fraud will dwindle, but whoever earns it through labor will multiply. 2017, food gained by fraud is sweet to a person, but afterwards his mouth is full of gravel. 21.6, making a fortune through a lying tongue is a vanishing myth, a pursuit of death. 22.16, oppressing the poor to enrich oneself and giving to the rich both lead only to poverty. In 28-22, a greedy one is in, a hurry, in a, is in a hurry for wealth. He doesn't know that poverty will come to him. <clears throat> Y'all, greed has both immediate and lasting consequences. When we think of money, we only want to think of money for what it can gain us. Rarely do we think of money in terms of what it will cost us. Greed will always demand more from us than we're willing to give. It'll always demand us to give it more and more and more because we never will be settled or content with it being enough. Greed will manifest itself in our inability to actually rest. We constantly feel that we've got to do more, do more, do more. So much so that we're, when opportunities come to us where we can say no to it, even though it promises economic gain, we don't. We will sacrifice our family and our friends and our ability to serve in our local church all so that we can get another check. What are you sacrificing now in order to live the lifestyle you think you deserve to live? Is it your family? Is it your wife or your husband? Is it your very own health? Is it your service to those within this church and in this community. True satisfaction doesn't come without a cost. Either it will cost you or it will cost someone else, but it will require a sacrifice. My dad was a chemical engineer, and um, for 20-plus years he worked for a company called Aramco. And about 10 years ago, as my dad and I had a conversation, he was debating whether or not he should continue working so that he could keep the lifestyle up that he had grown accustomed to. And it was in that conversation that he was asking me, should I retire or should I continue working? And in that conversation, we began to talk about what are the, some of the things that he regrets in life. 20 plus years living in another country, all to, in his mind, lead to this lifestyle that he wanted so desperately for his family. Well, it was in that moment that he said that his greatest regret wasn't that if he retired, he wouldn't be able to make the same amount of money. He had made millions over there. His greatest regret was that he couldn't get back the years that he lost with his family. The years that he had, because of his job, had to send his kids to boarding school and miss their teenage years. The years that he missed out on his children while they were in college and wasn't there to be a support for them. Those are the things that he said, money can't buy me. I can get the check and I can live this lifestyle, but I'll never recover those years. If we live 
for a check. If we live for money to fill us, to satisfy us, we'll only be disappointed. The sacrifice is not worth it, which is why in 23.4 it says, don't wear yourself out to get rich because you know better stop. I read that and I was like, I felt like my mama was slapping me in the face. You know better. Look at your life. How many people die because of working themselves to the bone? They've got money in their bank account, but their health, they can't even enjoy it. They can't even enjoy their loved ones because the stress of their labor, only to get paid more and more money, has left them on their bed. Stop. The greatest temptation of money is to treasure it above everything else. And when you make it your treasure, you will eventually see that it has limitations. The writers will go so far to tell us what's better than money. What's better than money? 15.6. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with turmoil. The fear of the Lord is better than money. Knowing God for who he is is better than any money or any check that somebody could give you. 15.17. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened ox with hatred. A vegan household with love <laughs> is better than having all the meat in the world with hatred. That's a bold statement. That's a bold <laughs> statement. But not only that, better a dry crust with peace than a house full of feasting with strife. A peaceful home is more important than money. You can have little, but have peace, and that'll be so much better than living in mansions with hostility. The Proverbs was written to a predominantly male context, and so I want to speak to the men. I want to speak to the fathers, the husbands, the, the men in the room, because I think it's so important for us. I've seen this in my own life, and I've seen it in many men's lives, that we believe fully that God has called us to be providers of our home. Our failure is thinking that God has only, has only called us to be providers of our home financially. That if money becomes our God, what we'll do is we'll place our family on the altar of our success. What we'll do is we will stay and get in arguments with our spouse, justifying the times away from home for things like, well, I'm just trying to provide. Why are you mad at me? Because I'm, I'm working for you. Don't you see it? And the reality is that when your kids grow up, yeah, they may enjoy the Xboxes and the Playstations and the big house, but what they're going to remember is not the things that you supplied them with, they're going to remember the times that you weren't there. They're going to only have memories of the things that you did with them and not the things that you did for them. If we don't realize that, we'll waste our entire, we'll, we'll waste our entire family chasing after something that God is saying, I gave you something so much better than that. I gave you children to enjoy, and yet you thought it was better to enjoy a trip to Italy. I gave you a wife to enjoy and you thought it was better to spend your time in a book or in conversations with other people. It's not that providing isn't something that God calls us to do. It's just that we are pro we're called to provide for more than that. We're called to be emotional supports in our home. We're called to be spiritual leaders in our home. And so the challenge that I have for all of us today, the challenge that I see in the scriptures is to say, you need to reorient your life. We need to reorient our lives around what's most important. God doesn't say that being a provider of your home means you've got to be bringing in a six-figure paycheck. If your six-figure paycheck is sacrificing your family, you need to rethink the job that you've committed yourself to. God would be more pleased with you to say, I don't need $100,000, but I can live off of fifty. And I'm going to take this job that doesn't have me working day and night. And I'm going to live within my means in such a way to where I can invest in my family. And on my deathbed, I don't have regrets of what I had sacrificed. That's a bold claim. And that's hard. Because we as men, we are wired to work. Not only men, but men, we are wired to be providers. And so to deny ourselves of material gain may mean that we have to say no to some good opportunities. I'm going to let that sit a little bit. 
because there's probably thoughts going on in your head of, that's crazy. That's crazy. But ask your wife what's most important to her. Have you ever done that? Asked her what's most important? I guarantee you, if she loves you, she's not going to say, I love what you can bring to our family more than I love you. Money's not a bad thing. It's the way that we use money that actually shows us and tells us that our hearts really want good things. Security and hope and companionship and significance and satisfaction, those are all good things from God. They are good things that everyone wants to have. God wants us to know that money and possessions is the wrong place to look for those things. To look for a life in the abundance of things is to have no life at all. But to look to Christ is to have life in everything we will ever need. Jesus, my point number two, Jesus is a far better treasure than money ever will be. God never intended for you and I to look at the things in which he created as something that would be more delightful and would have, give us more hope than the hope that he desires to give to us. He intended for us to look at things like money and to recognize its beauty. Its beauty in how money can provide us with opportunities and great things. That's beautiful. But don't let your, don't let your gaze stop there. Don't let your gaze see the beauty of something and then think that that's all that their God has to offer us. The beauty is only there to help captivate within us a gratitude and a graciousness and a gratefulness that God would entrust to us good things. But it also allows us to see its insufficiencies, its inadequacies, and all the blemishes that those things have. That those things are used to point us towards Himself. It's in seeing that money can't satisfy us that we can look to a God who can. By seeing God for who He truly is, we can rightly keep money in its rightful place. Y'all, we don't have a money problem. We don't have bad skills or tools that lead us down the road of where we may find ourselves in debt, living paycheck to paycheck, whatever it may be. Our greatest problem isn't money. Our greatest problem is a worship problem. We view that as greater than God. This is the wisdom that Proverbs is trying to help us understand. This is what it means to have wisdom, is to know that money is good, but it is not God. But this isn't just a new problem. This isn't a new problem. Don't think that where you find yourself right here that you are alone. No, this is an old problem. Back in Genesis 2 and through Proverbs, we've been, going back to the, we've been going back to the creation, the origin of where a lot of these things came from intentionally. Back in Genesis 2, God creates a garden. He gives Adam and Eve every tree that was good to the sight and good to eat from. And in, him, in God placing Adam in the garden, He gives them all of the privileges and rights of a father. Eat from every tree in the garden. Enjoy it. It's beautiful going to fill you, not just temporarily, but verse 9, 3, 9 doesn't just stop there. It says that he not only gave him every tree that was good to the sight, not every tree that was pleasing, that could satisfy him temporarily, but he also places another tree that isn't often spoke about. He places the tree of life in the middle of the garden as well. And it's in him placing the tree of life that communicates to us that God was after more than meeting temporary needs. He was after more than us just enjoying and having pleasure. He was after us enjoying everlasting life. God gives Adam and Eve both of these things and says, and he commands them, eat from every tree in the garden. But he doesn't stop there. He said, but there's one tree I don't want you to eat from. I don't want you to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not because he was after stealing their joy, but because he was after their protection. He didn't want them to ruin what he had provided for them. And so he says, that tree, if you eat from it, it will lead to your death. Well, Eve, created from Adam's rib, 
enters the picture, and now the serpent appears. The serpent comes in, and he begins to talk to Eve, and he says, Does, did God really say that you can't eat from every tree in the garden? Wait, God made all of this goodness, and he doesn't want you to enjoy it? What type of God is that? Eve responds back with, well, actually, God did say that we can't eat from the tree of the knowledge, the tree, the tree well, we can eat from every tree, but he tells us that we, can't, we shouldn't touch it or look at it or eat from it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now that Eve views God as someone seeking to steal her joy, she doesn't realize that God is actually the supplier of it. Eve, now in this particular moment, the serpent is able to play on her distorted view of God and is able to tell her, no, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat from this tree, you will be like him, knowing both good and evil. And so the woman saw that the tree was something good for food. It could meet her physical needs. Delightful to look at. If she possessed it, she in turn would be delightful as well as well as something desirable for gaining wisdom, it would give her complete independence. She would be like God. So she ate. and She gives some to her husband and he ate. And as a result, the consequences are that man is separated from God. Sin has entered into the world. However, Paul will tell us in 2 Timothy 1.9 that something else was taking place at that time. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time. In light of what took place in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, Paul would go on to say that God was not caught off guard by what happened to Adam and Eve. In fact, not only was God not caught off, off, off guard, but when they actually committed the sin, he didn't have to scramble and run back and try to figure out how he was going to repair what was broken. In fact, we can read Genesis 1 like, in the beginning, God, comma. God had already provided a plan for salvation for Adam and Eve even before he created it. Even before Adam and Eve, even before God gets to in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, at that break, God had already provided atonement for the very sin that his created being would do, though they weren't even created yet. Jesus becomes the vehicle through which God decides, I am going to repair what is broken so that, unlike Eve, we don't have to worship something created by God, but we can worship the Creator himself. Jesus now walks among us, inviting those who would look to money to be their fortress to say, no, don't look to money to be your fortress because I am your fortress. As our God is a solid rock, those who hear my words and those who do it, you will be like the one who built his house on solid rock. When the disasters of life come and hit your way, you will not be blown away, but rather you will be the ones who remain steady and anchored. The security that Jesus offers us is in a life is in a life that extends beyond this world and enters into the life to come. A security that will not vanish when we close our eyes. A security that will keep us to the very end. 11.4 says, Wealth is not profitable on a day of wrath, but Jesus rescues from death. It is Jesus who has lived the perfectly righteous life for you and I. It is Jesus that... Um, in his death and resurrection, he made possible this great exchange that could take place. That God on the cross takes upon himself our sin, and as a result of him taking on our sin, he now extends to those who have trusted him a perfect record of righteousness. The righteousness that rescues from death is Jesus' righteousness alone. Jesus' righteousness is the only currency that will be acceptable enough to God to set us truly free. It is his currency that now allows the not just for, it doesn't just allow us to be able to get out on bond. It's His righteousness that allows us to be completely set free. There's nothing that can hold us captive any longer. There's nothing that can keep us chained and boggled down. God has truly set you and I free. 
Brothers and sisters, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus over money, the one who gives a hope that doesn't vanish. The one who gives us confidence that the hope we have is not temporary, but the hope that we have is eternal. An eternal hope that one day the glory of God and His Son will be manifested to us. A hope that one day the, our bodies will be redeemed from God. A hope that one day that there will be this great joining together of a righteousness that's been promised to us and it actually manifesting in reality that we will look to this Jesus and we will see Him fully for who He is and will, He will in turn look back at us and see us as perfect, as righteous. This is a righteousness that rescues us from death but it leads us into God's marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, trust in Jesus. Trust in a Jesus who wants to offer us, wants to offer us more than something that is shaky, something that is unstable. He wants to offer us true companionship. He wants to offer us a companionship that will never fail you. When he says something, it means that it was true. And if he says it to be true, then that means that we can bank on it. Jesus offers a companionship that will never fail you, that will never leave you. If money can, when we set our eyes on it, it will take wings and fly away. We can look to Jesus who, after he was baptized, the Holy Spirit of God took on wings and descended down to him. And in him descending down to him, now he because of what He accomplished in the cross, He now gives to you and I and those who trust in Jesus, He gives to us a Spirit that indwells within us. That there's a hope and a confidence that we can have that God is always with us because God dwells within us. But also look to Jesus for your significance. Trust that Jesus can give you the worth and the value that you desperately long for. When God breathed, life into your nostrils? When God formed you and fashioned you in your mother's womb, He put His stamp on you, the dignity, the worth of being made in the image of God. And that is the very thing that gives you the ultimate value and worth that you long for. But not only that, Jesus declared you valuable because He was willing to send His Son to die for you. He was willing to take His only Son to take your punishment as His own and offer you everlasting life if you would trust in Him. Jesus isn't concerned about the externalities. He isn't concerned about you pretending to, to, to be right when you actually aren't. He's concerned with actually making you right, with actually changing you and giving you a brand new life that now His Word and His Spirit and the things that He loves can flow in you and through you. The fact that God Himself Jesus, who owns everything, left behind all his wealth, came to us in the form of man and as a servant, and died on the cross in his poverty, stripped of every material thing. Jesus hangs there, stripped of his clothes, stripped of, his, of, of any, anything that anyone would look at to say that's important. And yet he still dies. Yet he still dies. The one pretending to be rich, or pretending to be poor, but was actually rich, the one who looked upon our affliction and said, I'm still willing to obey God all the way to the very end. This Jesus, this Jesus pretended to be poor only so that we, if we trusted in Him, could be rich in faith. Our invitation is into His family. Think about that for a moment, that you and I, those who trust in Christ, can be called sons and daughters of God. What greater significance could you have in this life than that? But Jesus doesn't just give us security, doesn't just give us hope, doesn't just give us companionship, but He also gives us satisfaction. Jesus is the one who can truly satisfy all of your cravings and desires and needs. He's the one that if we were to look to Him, we can say, God, I need to look no further because I found You. I found everything that I wanted. Those who hunger are blessed because God is the one who satisfies. Those who would desire to be filled 
from anything else no longer has to because God is the one to which springs of living water flow in. Jesus says that if you trust in me, you will be satisfied. And the reality is that when you've tasted that type of grace, when you've tasted that type of relationship, what you'll find is it changes everything else. It changes your relationship with money, with your family, with your friends. It reminds you that God has done something for me that I could never repay Him back for. You'll finally be able to relate to money in a wise way because you realize that money is not your greatest treasure. Jesus is. My last point. Money is something that should be stewarded. It is a tool. If you are like me, you've battled, you may have battled with discontentment for years in your Christian walk. I found myself in places where there were seasons where I enjoyed contentment, but then there are seasons where I was completely discontent. Seasons where my love for money and what I thought it could offer you only landed me in a heap of debt. Only landed me in a heap, a heap of debt. And it was in those moments that, in light of what Christ has done, I can be reminded of the fact that even in my worst day, even in my money mismanagement, God's grace is still sufficient. And that if you are in this place and you hear all of this and you realize, man, I have, I have trusted in the wrong thing. God is here to say, but trust in me now. And in you trusting in me now, we can recalibrate and reorient your life in such a way to where you can live not as money being your God, but as me being your God. When you've tasted this grace, your attitude toward everything changes. And so when it comes to money, don't think of quantity, but think of responsibility. Not amount, but attitude towards whatever amount that you have. It's not about being rich. It's about whatever God has entrusted with you, entrusted to you, you steward it well. Money, as I mentioned earlier, is good. And with money being good, that means that God does delight in our use of it on ourselves at times. And I want to talk about this a little bit because in light of the prosperity gospel that's perverted, God's acceptance being solely on the financial blessings that we have or the health we have, I think in the church sometimes we forget that God actually made money good. And so things like going to a restaurant and buying a little bit more expensive steak than you normally would, going to a vacation and treating yourself to it, those aren't bad things. You don't have to feel guilty for having what you have because God is the one that's given it to you. 1 Timothy 4 says, For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Do you actually enjoy your money? There's some in the room that would say, yeah, I enjoy it all the time. And then there's some that are like, nah, I feel like God just wants me to save it all and hold it to myself. It's, savings is good, but spending is also good. And if you are the person who thinks that if I spend a little extra money on this particular thing that God is going to punish me, brothers and sisters, no. If you're the type of person that says, I want to spend all of the money on myself, then brothers and sisters, you also have missed it. God is saying that at this moment, and I want to tell this to our church, especially being young, that it is imperfectly okay to enjoy money. It's a good thing. But that's only one of the ways in which it's good. The second way that is good is that money in light of God's grace becomes now a vehicle to which we can display the generosity of our God. The Bible tells us that spending money on yourself is good. It's fun for the moment. But it's actually better to give than to receive. That the generosity that now money affords us to actually allows us to do things like sow seeds into God's work here on earth. Think about this for a moment. That the money that you have, the money that those who are members here at this church, as you give money every Sunday, once a month, whatever it may be, that money's not coming to us as pastors. That money is going into the ministry that God has given to us here as a church. And the reality is, whether you give here, whether you support a missionary overseas, whether you give to other causes or agendas, God invites us into the reality that we can store up treasures in heaven. That there's actually a way that when we stand on the other side of eternity, that 
what we may find, what we will find, is that by investing in the work of God or God's work here in this life, that what may be what will be stored up for us are treasures in heaven. That there may be a day where someone on heaven, on that other side, you get to see how your hundred dollar bill going to somebody's work led that person to be able to share the gospel with someone who had never heard it and bring them into faith. You'll never know about that in this life. But in the life to come, you can see how the way you used your money actually impacted lives. This is the beauty of our generosity, is that when we realize that our money doesn't belong to us, that we can give it freely away. Paul would even commend the church who had only been planted for three months, that in the midst of his sufferings in Philippians, in the midst of his sufferings, this church, who didn't have much, decided to give Paul a gift. Paul says that not only did they give a gift, but all of his needs were satisfied. They gave in a sacrificial way, out of their lack before his benefit. And not only that, but they gave and sought him out to give. Four things before we close. I know we're over time. God wants us to be good stewards. The first way to be a good steward is to show our freedom by looking for opportunities to invest in God's work. Don't wait for opportunities to come to you. Look for those opportunities. There are needs in this church that will never be communicated unless you actually talk to somebody and ask them about their life. It's in that conversation that needs come to the surface where now we can, as a church, view God's money as we are stewards and therefore we have the opportunity to live below our means so that we can give our money away to meet the needs of others. We look at Acts 2 and we say, that's a beautiful picture. The whole church brought their money into the storehouse and everyone's needs were made, but we don't actually think that's a reality. It's possible that when we've tasted grace, that we as a church can say, you know what, I don't need to live all, like all this. How about I set aside some money and say, hey, is there any needs in the church that I can help meet? And it's not you boasting or uh, uh, exalting yourself as it. Sometimes it's just, hey, go talk to our deacon of member care. Hey, Briar, do you know of anybody in need? We would love to help out. And I want to do it. Don't let them know I did it. But I just want to give some money towards that and to help them. Don't be too prideful. Let us not be too prideful to realize that the vehicle to which God wants our needs to be met is through one another. That is God's design for his people, that he gives some much and some little, but the ones with the much are able to meet the needs of those with little. Secondly, a good steward is empowered to give with eternity in mind. Verse 17, they didn't just give as if they were giving to Paul, but they knew that in light of their gifts to Paul, they were giving towards something that would last forever. It may seem like you're giving to people. Is that just that? You're giving to people. But God says that even giving to the poor is like giving to God. That our gifts to one another, God sees those gifts and he will repay us for them. Maybe not in monetary wealth, but more than that in his approval. God is pleased by that. Third, as good stewards, they gave sacrificially because even if they gave everything away, they never lost their true treasure. When you think about that, think of, are the gifts that I give to people really being given in a way to where it hurts my pocket a little bit? Am I willing to trust God enough to know that if he were to lead me to give somebody my last, that he still will take care of me? Sometimes God would just ask us to give sacrificially just to see if we're willing to trust him just to see if we believe that his promises are true, that he will take care of all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And lastly, a good steward can do all of this because they know that God cares for them. We have assurance, y'all. Trusting in God means that we don't have to be anxious about what we wear or the food on our table. That as we seek God, as we seek his kingdom, then all those things are taken care of. Every last one of them. And for me and our family, one of the greatest privileges that we had was early on in our marriage, struggling. And being brought to a point to where we didn't know where our, last che- our next check was going to come from. Only to watch God provide for our needs. Right on time and perfectly. God wants us to be in a place where if we are to understand stewardship, we are to understand that anything that I give away that belongs to God... God has the ability to supply us with that and more. 
not always materially, but also sometimes materially. That's this guy's assurances. So as we close, once we've realized that God desires for us not to treasure money, but He desires for us to treasure Him, then now we can pray things like Proverbs 30, as it reads, 37 through 9, two things I ask of you, don't deny them before I die. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with only the food that I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and still profaning the name of my God. Money is something to be treasured or is not something to be treasured. Jesus is. And by doing so, we steward all that he has entrusted to us for his glory and for our enjoyment. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for what you've provided us with. You've provided us with so much more than just material possessions. You've provided us with your son. You've provided us with complete acceptance and unconditional love. You've provided us with all of the things that our heart seeks after, security and hope and value and significance and, um, and companionship. Father, I pray that as we hear from you today, Father, we would not be bogged down in despair. But we be, what would, would, we be, be, um, would we be reminded of the fact that our hope lies with you, that your gospel has freed us from being enslaved to money, and that we're set free to pursue things like godliness. That is what you call great gain. That we're able to free ourselves from holding tightly to money, and that we can freely give it away. God, you are a God who supplies everything we need, and would we rest in those promises, even in light of Black Friday passing and Cyber Monday coming tomorrow, Father, would we realize that how we handle our money indicates our greatest spiritual health. Father, would you help us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.